Yeah, another thing um, this week we found out at our community group is that there's a lot of people in this church who have birthdays in the month of March. Can you believe it's already March? It's, I'm curious, anyone else here have birthdays in the month of March? No, nobody here? Oh, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. I know baby Abby, my wife Lonnie. Yeah, there's a, you know, it's my birthday much, month. I'm ready to celebrate all month long. Yeah. And so, you know, we're going to be celebrating probably one birthday this week, probably a couple more for the next couple of weeks. And if there's one thing I know for sure is this church loves to celebrate and do it well, particularly over really good, awesome, sometimes unique foods. Like some of you know what I'm talking about, but I was at this uh, birthday celebration the other month where we had this like awesome cake that was like multicolored, got shipped here all the way from somewhere else in the country. And in it, there's like this little baby figurine that you have to find, like these unique birthday experiences that we love to celebrate together. I think it's really cool. What we see in this passage is that the first place Jesus takes his disciples is to a party, a wedding celebration. He turns the water into wine. And you know, it's not this like communion-sized wine that we're going to take today, but it's almost an excessive amount of wine. The scholars say that the water jars that were filled to the brim would have held equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine today. You know, he creates this like massive open bar at the party, brings life to this like seemingly dying party. So the title of the sermon that we're looking at today, um, the one rhythm or the central truth that we, want to, that we want to learn about is that the way of Jesus is the way of celebration. That this regular, ordinary rhythm, you know, was vitally important to Jesus and thus it should be vitally important to us as his church today. You know, not just our lives outside the church, separate from what we do as a church, but our lives as disciples. That discipleship includes our ability to exude this posture of celebration. That the way of Jesus is the way of celebration. And we're going to look at three things. The importance of celebration, the path towards celebration, and the practice of celebration. So first, the importance. You know, the question we have to ask when we look at this passage is this. Why did Jesus, on his first stop with his disciples, take them to a party? Didn't he have work to do? You know, didn't he have things to teach? Wasn't his time on earth so limited? How does this party, this wedding celebration, fit into his ultimate purposes? You know, I think part of the answer is found in verse 2. It reads this, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. You know, I think it's significant. What we see is that these ordinary people in this small town of Cana wanted and enjoyed being with Jesus. That Jesus, Almighty God himself, who came to earth, who calls his disciples to follow him, did not go around, you know, high and mighty as you'd expect a king to, or you'd expect a religious leader to, or a pastor, but actually is invited to this wedding, that people want to be with him. That his faith and his demeanor made him likable, not detestable. He brings his disciples to this celebration to have a good time. You know, maybe for some of us, that, that makes us raise an eyebrow a little bit. Is that really what Jesus was like? Maybe we've focused so hard on the teachings of Jesus, on the hard teachings of Jesus, on his conflict with the religious leaders, that it, it made us miss. You know, is this really who Jesus is? That it catches us by surprise. You know, that it did it for me. For most of my life, I, I did not consider Jesus the party lover or the one who loved to celebrate. I grew up going to church, learning everything there is to about follow Jesus, what I thought, you know, reading the Bible, praying, confessing sin, fighting sin, that Jesus atoned for my sin. But at some point, you know, I said to myself, 
That's, that's not the life I want. I wanted to enjoy my life. You know, I wanted to have a good life. You know, recently, um, yeah, we've been, we've been talking with uh, Lani's brother, who lives with us a lot, and he's been on this quest to find his purpose in life. Really, really cool, awesome time for him. And what we found for him, in his own words, and what he's been saying to us, is that for him and most of his friends, it is not the claims about who God is that turn him away from Christianity. It is actually the fact that he doesn't like the way Christians live their lives. That he wants to have a good time. He doesn't want to be seen as a Christian. You know, is this how, is this how you see Christianity? Is there, is there partial truth to this in how you see Christianity? Is this how the way people around you see Christianity? Sadly, the church in America is not largely known for being a celebrated people. That those who find their way into churches normally are the religious moral folks. Those who are looking for good teaching, for a safe religious environment to grow up in, and not the people we saw flock to Jesus. You know, the sinners and, and those, the common person, who sees the celebration, sees the life that he brings. In the book, um, Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, the author David Kinnaman, who's the president of the Barna Group, says this, what are Christians known for? Outsiders see our moralizing, our condemnations, and our attempts to draw boundaries around everything. Even if these standards are accurate and biblical, even if these, even if these standards are accurate and biblical, they seem to be all we have to offer. Christians have become more famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. You know, my encouragement as we look at the passage today and as you read the Gospels is to consider this. Who really was Jesus? Let's see that for ourselves. You know, Jesus is not only shown in this passage to be invited to the wedding, but consider what he does. In verses 8 and 9, we see the mention of this other person um, called the master of the feast. Now, this would have been someone who's the equivalent today of like the MC or like the, the wedding planner. And their job was to keep the party going, you know, to make sure everyone was having a good time, to be the life of the party. But here what we see is the party is about to die, that the wine has run out, which in that culture was a huge deal. You know, for us, it may not seem like a big deal, but in that culture, one that was a shame and honor culture, with a wedding celebration that went on for seven days, for the wine to run out would have honestly brought shame to the whole family in probably the biggest moment of their lives. Jesus steps in, he turns the water into an abundance of the best wine. He steps in and he saves the master of the feast. What is he saying? He's saying, I am the true master of feast. I am the Lord of the feast who makes this party run with wine. You know, reject me if you must, but at least know who I am. Don't reject me because you think joy and you think celebration are found elsewhere. I have come as the true master of the feast to bring celebration to life. And it's not just here. You know, we see this throughout all the life of Jesus. More than anything, we see him eating with his disciples. We see him attending parties like this. We see him throwing parties like he does for Matthew. We see him multiplying food for 5,000 people. We see him comparing the kingdom of God to a party, to a feast. In Matthew 11, verse 19, the Pharisees even have this to say about him. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, this is the way people saw him. Remember even the prodigal son story? The, the son takes his inheritance and runs away with it, squanders it all. 
and he says, you know, I'm going to go back to the father as a hired hand. He goes back to the father, and the father sees him a distance and embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf, and what do we see at the end? You know, a party, this huge celebration. And the question that is implicitly asked at the end of the parable is this, are you like the younger son with the father at the celebration? Or are you like the older son, so fixated on some bizarre obedience that you're unwilling to attend? Is our view of God only one of obedience to the father like the older son? Or is it like the younger son, those who are willing to join the father in the celebration? You know, this is the first thing Jesus shows us here. He shows his disciples the first thing we need to know. He comes as the true Lord of the feast. He comes to celebrate and he calls his people to a life that practices this. That's the importance. But secondly, the question that comes up is what is the path to get there? You know, what does that path look like? If Jesus identified in this way, if he practiced this rhythm, how do we as followers of Jesus grow in our ability to practice this? I want to start by maybe addressing how I think we ought not to approach this. You know, our tendency is often to say, Jesus celebrated, therefore I should follow his example and celebrate, then I'm going to be a good Christian. You know, our tendency as we read scripture, especially looking at the life of Jesus, is to take his, his actions as an example, define who we are, our identity in Christ, by the things we do, by following what he did. You know, this is, this is normal because this is the narrative of probably our everyday lives, that what we do defines who we are. You know, if someone came up to you and someone knew and introduced himself and asked, hey, who are you? How would you introduce yourself? Normally, we'd say, I, well, I work at so-and-so, or I practice this vocation, so I am a doctor, or I am a lawyer, I am an engineer. You know, we say, I, I study at this school, I take classes here, so I am a student. We say, I take care of my kids, so I am a good mother, I am a good father. That we define who we are by the things we do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is we take that narrative and we tend to apply it to our lives as Christians. I follow God, therefore I am a Christian. But, you know, take a second to think about that narrative. I think this is the exact narrative of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that Jesus absolutely opposed. That they said, if I follow the Torah, the example set before me, then I will be right with God. I will be a follower of God. The gospel message says something radically different. It takes that story and it completely reverses it. It says, do not be like God. Do not just try to do what he says and then you're going to be a good Christian. It says this, it says, know who God is. Know the truth of who God is and what he's done. In light of that truth, you know, we find our identity. We find who we are. And out of the understanding of this new identity, then we find our way of what it looks like to respond to God. That the gospel flips the narrative. And it says, the person and the work of Jesus make me who I am. It says, let the truth of the gospel be so real to us. You know, let's saturate our lives and form us into a new people who then go and respond to God. It changes the motivation for everything we do. You know, it's a totally different framework. His life and his rhythms are not just an example for us to follow, but a pointer to who he is and what he came to do. You know, that's how we read the Bible, not through this lens of morality, how all other religions say we follow God, that we follow his teaching, and this is what we are to do, and that's who we are in God. But it says the opposite. It says, Jesus did it all. He makes me who I am. And that identity, in turn, informs how I live. You know, it's all here in this passage. We see Jesus says, I am the God of celebration. I am the true master of the feast. That is who I am. 
but we also see how this act of turning water into wine points us to what he's done for us. We read on in verse 3 of the passage. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You know, what kind of a response is this? His response seems to almost make no sense. At first, he says with a harsh tone, Woman, to his own mother, what does this have to do with me? You know, there's a lot of interpretations out there to what Jesus could have meant here. But I think the best one is the fact that his mind is somewhere else, that he is troubled. He responds with this distant tone because his mind is a million miles away. Now, what is he thinking about? He says, my hour has not yet come. And the phrase, my hour, it's a key phrase in the book of John. You see it here, and you see the same phrase again in John 7, John 8, John 12, and then again in John 13, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus says, Father, my hour has come. That every time Jesus uses this phrase, my hour, he is speaking of and he's looking ahead directly to his own death. He says here in John 2, it is not yet my time to die. You know what is happening? I think Jesus is here at the wedding celebration, but his mind is elsewhere. He sees this specific situation, you know, the celebration going on and the wine running out, and it pushes him deeper to consider his own death. He considers the greater narrative of scripture and how his life fits into that narrative. He says, at the beginning, humanity was made to celebrate. When we look in Genesis chapter 1, God creates Adam and Eve. And what is the first commandment he gives them? Eat. Eat of all the trees of the garden. Three times a day to feast to your heart's content. To celebrate through eating. To recalibrate on who I am as your provider, as a giver of abundant blessing. But the story continues. Humanity chooses to believe God's blessing is not enough. That the serpent comes says, did God really say that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you will die? Is he withholding something from you? He introduces this opposing narrative, one that says God is not enough. He will not provide it all. And so what do they do? They take the fruit into their own hands. They exchange this truth that God is a generous God that provides everything I need for another narrative, one that says I need to take for myself in ways I can now. God is not enough. God says, you, can, you have chosen to live with this mindset of scarcity, that I am not enough, but that mindset, that dependence on yourself rather than me will drive you to the ground, that the wine will run out, that the party will come to an end, that all celebrations will come to an end, that throughout all of scripture, we see this question, does Israel trust in the providence of God or do they live in this narrative that there is not enough? You know, do I need to take what I can for myself now? And God continues to try to remind his people. He implements the Passover, this celebration of who he is, that he delivered them. He implements these seven feasts and these festivals throughout the Old Testament. But time and time again, we see Israel reject God, go after their own desires. But the narrative of scripture continues on. You know, God does not leave his people there. He says he's not content to leave us in this state. And it brings us to Isaiah 25, verse 6, the prophecy that says, The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach, reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It says that we were made for this eternity of celebration, that this is even the picture we see at the end of scripture in Revelation. You know, humanity participating in this giant feast for all of eternity. And I think in this moment for Jesus at the wedding celebration, he considers this whole narrative. He sees this ultimate celebration to which all celebrations point. And yet he sees what he has come to earth to do, what only he can do to get his people there. That the only way he will provide the wine for his ultimate wedding feast to be united to his people, to keep the party going, will be through the hour of his death. And at that moment, it is a troubled thought. You know, remember in the garden, Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he's sweating tears of blood. What cup is he talking about? He tells his disciples that this cup is my blood. You know, he says, it is the cup of wine poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, my turning of water into wine today is not just a miracle. It is a pointer to what I have come to do for you that the wine I give today will keep this party going, but my blood is the true wine that keeps the celebration going for all of eternity. You know, if you don't think this is still what Jesus means, it doesn't get any clearer than the way we see him do the miracle. In verse six, it says this, now there were six stone stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, what are these? The Jews would wash themselves, you know, before they entered the presence of God. And it was a symbol for them of the fact that they were moral sinners, the fact that they needed to be cleansed in order to be in the presence of God. Jesus said, this new wine I bring today, this symbol for my, for my blood, this is the only thing that will truly cleanse you. It is the only thing that will truly bring us into the presence of God so that every celebration doesn't have to come to an end. This theologian, um, Edmund Clowney, he writes it this way. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst the world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. You know, no doubt, as, as Elisa shared, there's a lot of sorrow going on in our world right now. I think of what's happening at home with my wife. I think about Ukraine and all the suffering that's going on there. And no doubt we should mourn these things. We should denounce these oppressive ways because Jesus says this is not the way the world ought to be. You know, this is not what humanity was made for, that the wine should not run out, that we can take this suffering of the world seriously, not diminish what is happening. But I think what Jesus shows us is that in the gospel, we have the only good news that this suffering is not the end, that we're made for this eternal feast, this eternal celebration, one where there will be no more suffering, no more weeping, no more death. And it comes through this true wine, Jesus' sacrifice for us all. You know, who does that make us? Who does that make us as his church? It makes us a people with the certainty of an eternity of celebration before us. It makes us a people who can mourn with those who mourn, who can say the world's not as it ought to be, we can take it seriously, and yet who can celebrate a greater hope, I think with integrity. It makes us into a people who can celebrate knowing that every celebration we experience is a pointer to Jesus, the true master of the feast, the one who brings the ultimate heavenly celebration and a pointer to Jesus, a true wine, the one who sacrificed for us gets us there. You know, this is the path towards celebration.
knowing who we are in light of who God is and what he has done for us. You know, but what does it look like? What does the practice of celebrating, of being the most celebrated people look like? I think I have three takeaways here. First, it means that we, we celebrate in the ordinary. You know, Jesus in this party, he, he sees his upcoming death. And, you know, maybe he could have done what we would expect him to do, to teach a lesson or to teach a principle, to say, my death is what is really important. This is what, the only thing that's important. Everything else going on is a distraction. But we don't see any of that. We see him go through with making this ordinary party great. He multiplies the wine. He shows us that this seemingly worldly celebration is not opposed to the gospel, but rather the exact opposite. It is a bridge to the gospel. He makes life better. He brings the better wine. He takes what many people deem holy, you know, the water in these ceremonial jars, and he brings it to the party. He takes what many people deem unholy, the wine at the party, and he multiplies it. He makes it sacred. He points it to himself. He, break, he breaks down this barrier for his disciples of what they consider sacred and what they consider secular. You know, what does it mean? It means that normal, ordinary things that we celebrate, things like holidays, birthday parties, new births, new jobs, new homes, graduating, finishing a class, you know, all these things are sacred opportunities to celebrate and to be pointers to Jesus, these bridges to the gospel. You know, consider even the simple act of sharing a meal with someone. That in those, in those small moments, for a second, you know, when you're eating really tasty food, really awesome food, and you're having your physical needs met, and you're talking with one another, and you're having your emotional needs met in relationship, that even if all else is going wrong in the world for yourself, you know, we kind of feel for that moment that we're home, that life is as it should be, that for a moment we experience maybe the dimmest picture of what we will experience for an eternity. You know, what kind of people would it make us if the gospel story, if this truth were a reality for us? It means that every meal we ate, every time we get together, we'd be reminded that the ultimate reality is already ours, is to come, but is already ours. That we would take all the gifts, all the resources that God's given us, our ability to cook awesome food, you know, our ability to celebrate all these occasions we have, our time, our finances, and we use them to celebrate God's blessing that we'd follow him not by abstaining from the celebrations that we have or by separating it from our spiritual lives, but by embracing celebration as the church the way Jesus did. You know, but secondly, I think it means that we invite others to celebrate with us. We celebrate among others. You know, do you see how Jesus does the miracle? Read on in verse 7. It says, Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Jesus doesn't just do the miracle on his own. He involves these lowest individuals, these servants, in the miracle. He gets them involved. He instructs them to take the wine to others. That whenever Jesus does something to you, whenever he reveals something to you, he intends to do something through you. He's inviting us to celebrate in the ordinary and then to point others to him through our celebration. You know, what does it mean? I think it means not just celebrating with our friends, with people in our church, but celebrating with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our coworkers, with our family members who need to be pointed to the beauty of the gospel. You know, the cool thing is I have seen this so much here at Grace Life that I know you guys do an awesome job of this. And my encouragement right now is to say, refocus. You know, we're coming out of COVID, hopefully, but... People are excited to celebrate, and you guys do this so well. 
I know Stepping Stone, you guys do this so well. You know, I remember when I was in college, that week after week for a season, we would gather outside of uh, Subway on 33rd and we'd, uh, we'd cook burgers like from midnight to 3 a.m. and hand them out to anyone coming from parties, anyone walking by, and it was an awesome time. And you know, I don't know if you still do this, but we used to do this thing called hop dogs, this like Eggo waffle with like a hot dog in it and then we'd like drizzle barbecue sauce on top. Now that I think, and then we'd give it out to like hundreds of people and now that I think about it, I'm like, man, were we really giving people good food? But you know, my standards may have changed. I think back then I loved it, students loved it, it was awesome. And you know, I think that that's actually the event. That was one of the first events I went to where I encountered Stepping Stone, where I encountered God. And it was at events like that where I met students who had never heard of Jesus. But they said, man, this might be a Jesus worth pursuing. And some people said, you know, this is not the Jesus that I thought about. This is not what I thought Jesus was about. I remember even after college being invited to Grace Life, to, to Christie's home, to eat awesome food every week at community group, and, you know, being able to invite coworkers to come and eat with us. And I remember one coworker commenting on how, you know, this is something special. There's something cool about this community, how they can eat together, how they can celebrate together and have such a good time and yet still talk about Jesus. You know, it's through these spaces. I think the most genuine, real conversations, the best interactions I had with people who did not identify as Christian, where I think people often for the first time were intrigued to learn more, that they encountered this glimpse of what the gospel was about. You know, I'd say that when we look at the life of Jesus, these are the sacred spaces that Jesus chose to exist. You know, one last story, um, pre-COVID, Lonnie and I, we'd with our church back in California, we tried to make this a regular thing. You know, we'd have these weekly intentional dinners with friends, with students, with neighbors, and we'd, we'd try to celebrate every single birthday. I shared about how we celebrate Isaac's birthday. We tried to celebrate every holiday, every promotion. We even celebrated this one guy who got his citizenship and threw a party for him. And I remember this, uh, this one student from the Claremont Colleges who we were ministering to, she started coming to the dinners. You know, she started to celebrate with us in the ordinary ways. She's, and then she started to ask these like hard questions about Jesus and we would try to answer them. We try to walk her through the Bible. And then eventually, you know, by God's grace, she um, decided to give her life to Jesus. She wanted to be baptized. And, you know, we said we could, we could baptize you at Sunday service. But she said, I want, my, I want all my friends and I want all my family to be there to celebrate with me. So instead, we threw this big Christmas party on a, on a Friday night. And uh, we invited our church. She invited all her friends and her family. And then at that time, we were partnering with this uh, Hispanic church plant in the area, and they brought their taco trucks, and they started cooking this amazing fresh tacos for us. They played music, and we had this great time. And then at the end of the party, you know, Lonnie and I, we were, we were getting ready to baptize her, and she, she shares her story with everyone there. She says, you know, I'm, I'm leaving my life a sin, but this here, this picture that you see, this is the life I choose. And to me, what, what she was saying is that the celebration you see of, you know, students from the most prestigious school in the area, and then Hispanic families who live in some of the poorest areas in the neighborhood, coming together to have an awesome time. This is something you only see in the gospel. And then we baptize her, and I only wonder what that meant for all of her friends and her families to see, that only Jesus makes this kind of celebration possible, this celebration that I just experienced. You know, what would it look like for us as a church to regularly practice this rhythm, to make it so integral to who we are as a church? What would it look like to do so in the company of others, those who God has placed in our lives? You know, that's the rhythm of Jesus we follow. But lastly, I think for our time here today, what it looks like to practice this rhythm of celebration is to celebrate in the gospel. 
At the end of the passage in verse 9, we read this. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The bridegroom takes all the credit from the master of the feast for what Jesus did. You know, I think this is a key example of what it looks like to be transformed by the gospel, what it looks like to celebrate the gospel, to look to God and say, let me take the credit for all that Jesus did for me. Accept me for what Jesus has done, that I celebrate his work, I celebrate who he is. You know, my prayer today is that that reality of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, becomes powerfully real for us today. Yeah, let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity, even today, to come together to celebrate the good news of the gospel. That you, Jesus, are the, only, that are the true master of the feast, the true wine, the one who has done it all for us, the one who gives us life that is life abundant. Man, God, would you be with us as we head to communion, as we head to worship? Would you let us celebrate the gospel? In your name we pray. Amen.